We're leaving chapter one. Fine. Well, I'm going to say one more thing about chapter one. Then I'm going to go back uh, briefly with uh, chapter two, verses one through 11, and then dive into the rest of chapter two. Anybody got any leftover comments from chapter one or chapter two? 127, I liked your citizenship comment Sunday. Well, I'm going to visit that one more time tonight because the the theme of the latter half of chapter two, Dick, it's uh, when uh, Dick got here early and he said, what are we going to talk about tonight? I said, pronouns. And uh, generally that's a cultural time bomb, but the the pronoun that I'm going to look at tonight is that it's plural and uh, that that especially the first verse that we're going to look at where Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, almost universally we teach that as an individual. But you can't have one citizen. <laughs> Citizens is always plural. That you, 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 the one, one citizen does not a country make. <laughs> and so when we pick up that, uh, that Paul is talking throughout chapter one and two, he's speaking in the plural. He's, he's speaking to a church. He's writing to a church. And so when he says, walk worthy as citizens, he sort of opens a topic where he's, he's talking about uh, a collective. And that's why now it makes sense in the first four verses of chapter two, where he's talking about the way we treat each other. So it's, it's, he's thinking in terms of plural, look out for each other. Don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Encourage if there's any affection, compassion, fellowship. He's, he's speaking to a community of faith uh, that we call the Church of Philippi. And so this is a, a, a plural. And when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you, in an irony, each of you, you know, anybody know how we would translate the Greek for that here in the South? Y'all? Y'all? <laughs> but... Y'all don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. And as I said in church on Sunday, then uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 are pretty much a praise song that he dumped in. But I didn't get to explore it much either last week or on Sunday. Why do you think he dropped it in? Do we have anybody who uh, music majors or, or you've been uh, you've ever had to lead worship at a church? Skip, you've been around it all your life. But do you all know that the hymns, especially some of the older hymns, we do them a disservice if we sing less than all of the verses? And I know that sounds like, oh, my goodness, some of them have seven and eight verses. True. But most of the early hymn writers, their songs, so that you would follow theology 
all the way through the song. If you don't, if you skip some of the verses, you miss some of the theological truths that they're trying to include. So if you if you get a, a hymn book and look at some of the old hymns and you uh, look at the, the subject through the, the verses, you're going to see usually talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, resurrection. Uh, there, there's there's going to be a, a Bible study through the song which tracks uh, theology. Well, that's what Paul did here. He said, I know a song that talks about the gospel. I know a song that speaks on the humility that I'm trying to help the Philippians understand. I'm trying to help them to know that that that, that we've got to nip it in the bud. We that, that you, you guys are doing good, he said to the church. Y'all are y'all are great. You're you're a, a great and generous church. You've got unity, but there are some seeds of disunity, and we need to make sure they don't grow. And so he says, but what is our unity based on? Is it based on we like each other? Is it based on we have common interests? Is it based on we know the secret handshake? No. And even more so, the gospel that our that that and, and that's where he started he said said in humility let each one of you regard others as more important than yourselves and he says well let me tell you about the humility that's going to bond you together he said it's found in christ have this attitude in you humility which was in christ jesus and then he breaks into this song who although he existed in the form of God. So he, he speaks of his divine nature. He didn't regard that a thing to be held on to, grasp, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. So here, here's the incarnation, right? Deity, <clears throat> divine, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, heaven. Jesus releases his hold on heaven. He comes to be a man. He's born of a virgin. He lives a life on earth. And then he dies on the cross. All of that is in this praise song that Paul quoted and dumped into chapter two. So if we were going to try to track Paul's thinking, we would have to quit with chapter two, verse five, and pick back up with chapter two, verse 12. Because what he did in the middle was to dump this song in there that he says, you got to get the theology first. You got to know that everything I'm saying is based on the birth, the life, the teaching, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the promised return, the, the purpose and plan of God, the covenant relationship, the gospel. Everything we're talking about is based on that. We, we, I mean, Will Wood had lots of Navy friends, all right? He had lots of friends at the country club. He had lots of friends uh, in lots of places, but Paul's saying the kind of unity I'm talking about is not based on affinity other than affinity in Christ. And I don't know, the, the deepest friendships I have are, are based in Christ, you know, I, I'm friends with my neighbors, you know, my neighbors that uh, 
uh, I, I like them and, and, you know, I hang out, enjoy talking with them. But as far as knowing somebody who's got my back, knowing somebody who's, who's walking with me through the fire, it's going to be affinity that's based in Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to say. And so now he picks up in chapter 2, verse 12, which is where uh, we are tonight. And some of you are going, boy, you got there in a hurry. Usually you chase around the block for a while. Um, Paul has reminded them that he is holding them accountable. And that's that's kind of important. Uh, he, he, he basically said... Hey, I'm going to know if you're if you're not uh, uh, doing good. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm going to hear about it. Uh, back in chapter one, he said, whether I come or see you and only hear about you, he he's checking up on him. He's he's making sure they're doing the right thing. And that's important because he's going to say some things about obedience that you're not really sure if he's saying to the Philippians you need to be obedient to me or you need to be obedient to God? And the answer is yes. You remember Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so in a way he's saying, as the pastor with a lot of young Christians, there are some things you're just going to have to take my word for. But your obedience, your allegiance, your loyalty is ultimately to Christ and Christ alone. So he picks up in chapter 2, verse 12, and doggone it if he doesn't start with the word therefore. <laughs> so what is he referring to here? The therefore that was at the beginning of chapter 2 referred back to chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So what is... what? What's the reference point for this, therefore? It's the Christ hymn. Goes back to the back to the song, right? Back to the, the the whole thing that says, okay, the humility that that I'm asking you for is based on the humility that Christ taught us. So if you were going to draw a line from therefore in chapter two, verse twelve, you'd probably draw it all the way back to chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the attitude then is described in the Christ hymn, verses 6 through 11, and based on that that bedrock truth, that, that, that Christ uh, released his divinity, he became a man, uh, then he demonstrated his love for us. And while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, being found in the appearance of man. So then it speaks, of course, of the exaltation. And so Paul is saying, I'm not just making this stuff up. This, this is not just uh, fortune-telling or tarot cards, this is based on the action of the Father sending the Son, guarding with the Spirit, and it's described in that wonderful song. So, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, so then again, are, are we talking about obeying Paul or obeying God? 
Paul. Yes. And God. And God. Okay. If Paul is obeying God and they're obeying Paul, it's that they're trusting their pastor to lead them down the right path. And they're they're new Christians, right? They they they're they're being guided here. As far as we know, there's a rich businesswoman, uh, a jailer, and a formerly demon possessed girl. That's all we know are members of this church. <laughs> Now, by now, of course, that it's matured. Do you remember how we how we knew that there was some uh there, there there was at least some structure in the church? Do you remember how we discovered that? The elder comment? Yeah, he he addressed the letter to the deacons and the overseers. We, there there was some church government by now, but there's still a, a new church. So he's he's kind of given them some uh, some help. Okay, therefore. My dear friends, plural, okay, as you have always obeyed. So if friends is plural, you has to be plural. And it is a fair assumption that you is going to be plural throughout. And the southern version of this text would say, y'all, friends, y'all have always obeyed. You've always tried to do the right thing. You, you, you followed my instructions. You, you've listened to Timothy. You've met, listened to Epaphroditus. Y'all have, have done well. You've done well in my presence. And now I hear you're doing okay in my absence. And now it sets us up for one of the most famous verses in all of Philippians. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's an unfortunate translation in some of your Bibles. <clears throat> and it's it, it's probably the literal translation of the of the language, but it doesn't say your salvation, it says your own salvation. ESV translates it that way. Um, New American Standard might. I'm looking at New International tonight. Does anybody's translation have your own salvation? The Amplified. Yeah. Don't let that confuse you. That's still plural. That's that's y'all's salvation. Now, a caution here. And if you're watching online, a lot of you are hiding behind your name instead of your picture, but that's okay. Um, if you have a question, jump in. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that everybody gets heard. Um, it's a mistake to think that Paul's intent here was to create a debate between saved by faith or saved by works. He's not on that page at all. It's, it's people who have tried to interpret this verse that have messed that up. Paul is assuming salvation by grace through faith. In Ephesians, he said, that's not of your own, lest anyone should boast. And then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ to do good works. So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul gets the order, right? You're saved by grace. You're saved uh, by faith 
by grace through faith. And even that faith is given to you because if you tried to take credit for it, you'd brag about it. My translation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he says, so even your faith is a gift to you. And so to think that here in Philippians, all of a sudden he's talking about working out our salvation. That's not right. I don't understand either. Mine says, mine says what you said. Fear and trembling. I'll get there. I promise. Eventually. We got a lot of words to take apart. But the interesting thing here is that do an experiment sometime just for the heck of it. Let your Bible fall open to anything that Paul wrote. Okay. Corinthians, uh, Romans, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, anything, Timothy, anything that Paul wrote, and just put your finger down on a verse. And if you go 10 verses back and 10 verses forward, I bet you're going to find Paul talking about, I'm worth saved, I'm being saved, I'm going to be saved. He talks about past, present, and future because Paul, Paul thought about our sanctification as a process. You know, I I I haven't arrived yet. I I haven't I, I'm nearing the finish of the race, but I haven't finished the race. And so Paul, it's oversimplified, but but a good way to think about it is that Paul pretty much always said I. I was saved, I'm being saved, I'm going to keep being saved. Because he saw that, yes, when we were justified, Romans 9, when we were justified, it was his road to Damascus. When, when he heard the voice of God, his salvation started. Who are you, Lord? Who's, who's persecuting me? Who's struck me blind? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And, and Paul saw that his journey started there, and then it, it continued. And so it, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is saying, work out your faith. You, you work out your faith. Uh, one uh, writer said it this way. One writer said in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul means salvation in terms of the progressively coming to experience all of the aspects and blessings of salvation. All of the dimensions of salvation. Think of the Beatitudes, right? What does it start with? The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You, you know nothing about faith. What's the last one? Blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, and say all manner of evil for my name's sake. So there's, the, the baby Christians don't have people talking bad about them. It's the Christians that have been through the wars, and they have said some things that have made people uncomfortable. And so they are reviled and persecuted for this. There's, there's a progression, even in the Beatitudes, that goes from poor in spirit to maturity in Christ. And, and so throughout the scripture, we get this idea that, yes, we are saved at a point in time. When we cry out to God, we give all we know of ourselves to all we know of him. 
And if we were to die at that second, we would be with him in paradise. And yet we are left here on this earth. Some people call it justification, sanctification, glorification. And that sanctification is the big middle of the of the, the journey of discipleship. You're justified just as if I'd never sinned. You are sanctified, which is the growth that takes place in the big middle. And one day you will be glorified uh, walking with Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul was interested in discipleship. I'm going to stop there because I bet somebody has a question. So this is Emily. So his part of his point is that, yes, we're saved at a point in time, but it's an ongoing process. It's not, oh, yeah. you know, I'm done, you know, done and dusted. It is that that seems like a really important part of that to me. Let me add to that, if I can keep you on the line for a second, Emily. Okay. What would your guess be of the thing that we will battle the most in our spiritual journey? Complacency. So when he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he says, never forget that I'm God and you're not. Never forget what I saved you from. Never forget that 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 your pride, your complacency, that's going to continually try to get in the way of me growing you into the person I want you to be. And I, I look at my own journey and I go, yeah. <laughs> when I start getting full of myself. So when I work out my salvation and I get that I'm speaking as an individual and that Paul is speaking collectively as a church, but it applies both places. Hey, as a church, Dunwoody Baptist Church, things are going really well. You're growing. People are giving. You're sending out mission teams. People are getting saved. You're coming alongside of families in grief. You're, you're, you're doing a lot of good things. But he says, Dunwoody Baptist Church, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Never forget that when we worship, we're not just going through the motions. That whether at 830 on Sunday morning or 11 on Sunday morning, we are falling at the feet of Jesus. And we are shouting out to him in gratitude because he saved even us. He has blessed our church. He is... He has reached down and and saved us from ourselves. He said, don't ever forget that. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is not the fear of a guilty sinner. This is the reverence of a grateful saint. So there's a, a sense that we skip. We have to capture the, the fear and trembling, but it's not that we're afraid that he's going to reject us all of a sudden. Okay, I finally did something that went too far. <laughs> yeah, okay, that 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 thing I said, that's over the edge. The way I treated that person, that's that's too much. God's okay, you're off the island. <laughs> that's not what God is doing here. See, I got this thing here. It says this fear and trembling reminds Christians that they should not take God's grace for granted as though the only thing one needs to do to go to heaven is to die. 
never take for granted what it cost God to save us. So it, it <clears throat> right, so we we landed the what it means to work out your salvation, right? This not not remaining not remaining complacency, recognizing the journey, right, humbling yourself. And then you take the fear of trembling, right? Which what I read was that there's a Hebrew translation for that, right? Yura, which which also means respect, reverence, and worship. Um, so if you kind of replace fear and trembling with you know, with respect, reverence, and worship, you know, you string together, it's got a completely different meaning than service. Yeah. Like Absolutely. And to Emily's point. I don't know that we have complacency any more evident than when we're in worship. You know, when we're just, oh, okay, what are the songs? Oh, somebody's going to talk. We're going to pray and talk about the offering. What's for lunch? And, and I, he says, don't that happen. Go ahead. Well, I really like when we when I hear somebody emphasize the reverence and awe versus the, maybe it's the current vernacular or something, but fear and trembling is, takes me to that place of guilt and shame. And I'm, you know, I'm a worthless, whatever. Um, whereas the reverence, it gets me in touch with, God's love of me as well as my love of God. Um, I love the what I love what so I much. said. Yeah, what the, what that guy said. This is a, it's not fear and trembling for a guilty sinner. It's fear and trembling for a grateful saint. Correct. And and that's that it that's that's it's worship. It's reverence. It's awe. And um, so there's one more component that we've kind of forgotten. Do you remember what Paul's theme has been? Do you remember what the talking point here is? Yeah, yeah, he's saying he's saying that that the way you work out your salvation as a collective is to demonstrate your unity, demonstrate your reverence, demonstrate your awe. But he's dealing with a specific problem that he's going to get to in chapter four. But he's kind of setting the table for it. You remember he said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any fellowship of the Spirit, any tenderness, compassion, affection, if those things are present, make my joy complete by being a one mind, united in spirit, maintaining the same love, intent on one purpose. And so he set up chapter 2 by assuming that unity he gave us the Christ hymn as the theology behind the unity of the church. He told us that we're never finished with it. But Emily, I'd suggest that if complacency is number one, the temptation to be fractured is probably a close second. If there's one town, there's at least two Baptist churches and one probably split off of the other one. And you know, the old deserted a resentment and a coffee pot. Yeah, it's that's it. And so he's trying to make sure we don't lose sight of that. But he's going to say one more thing 
that sets the table from a theology point of view. He said, your works don't matter unless it's God who's working through you. And so he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purpose. So now all of a sudden the work that God does in me may be painful if that moves me towards his purpose. The work that he does in us as a church may be growing pains as he moves us to his purpose. So the unity, you know, when when, when the fellowship is good, the money's good, the music's good, the preaching's mediocre, we as a church are going to be okay. But if something happens, if if we got to cut something out of the budget because the money's tight, now all of a sudden people are not unified anymore because they don't want you to cut their thing. Uh, if, if we have to confront somebody, if we have to exercise church discipline, if a staff member leaves, now all of a sudden the unity becomes a key part of the foundation of how we do church. That's where he's getting and so he says, it's God who works in you. Now, I, I sort of gave it away a few minutes ago. Ephesians 2.10, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ to do good works. So remarkably consistent with his theology that he's giving to his churches. And here in Philippians, he said, it's God who is working through you. New paragraph, same topic, more specifics. So he says, stop bickering. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, this is an interesting thing. What are the words that are used in your translation for grumbling and arguing? Complaining. Complaining. Disputing. Disputing. Fault finding. Fault finding. So the name and doubting. The first word um, comes from a. The same idea, if you remember in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were working their way across the desert, they complained about the food, they complained about the lack of food, they complained about uh, whether God was going to do this or God was going to do that. It seemed like they complained for 40 years. And the root word of complain here is that action, that there was this constant uh, whining, murmuring. Yeah, this it, it, it now it, it it's just murmuring, baseless murmuring. That's actually the word used by the New Revised Standard Version. Is murmuring. Yeah. The second word in the pair has to do with legal um, proceedings, so it would imply that the murmuring has ramped up a little bit and even found an object that somebody's suing somebody. Somebody's bringing somebody to court. And and, and if 
whether it's it's a formal legal proceeding or it's not, you can see the progression. It's one thing just to whine in general. It's another thing to let your your discontent find a subject, an object, and elevate that in a legal sense. So do all things without grumbling, this general discontent, and especially don't start calling names. Especially, you know, to, what is the old saying? To, um, if you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, to talk about it is just gossip. Well, what he's saying here is that the, that for you to direct your grumbling to somebody, that's the second word in the pair, however it's translated in your uh, scriptures. And that, so that legalism also can get us in so much trouble about, that, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. And, oh, let's look at this this part and pick it apart. And well, when, you're not doing it right. Whenever we take somebody to court, we say my rights have been violated. I'm right. You're wrong. And, and Paul is trying to say, hey, I just gave you an example that Jesus gave up all of his rights. That's, that's the definition of humility from the Christ hymn. I gave up all of it. He gave up all of his rights and have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This, this attitude of, of rights. Judy, I just thought about when we prayed, we didn't pray for the Annie's surgery. Did she get to have it? Who? Didn't, uh, did your daughter have a, or a child have a surgery? Oh, my nephew. Nephew. Yeah, he had a broken finger. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I knew we missed something <laughs> in prayer. All right. So when we, deal with this he shifts gears again and he's do you remember the the term that i i've said several times the henna clause h-i-n-a it's the the dependent or the so that clause well he actually translated so that do everything without grumbling or arguing so that in order to that there's a connection between what's before it and what's after it. You have to do this in order for this to happen so that you may become, and again, another pair of words. Uh, my translation says blameless and pure. What do your translations have for that pair? Yeah. All right. Um, blameless and harmless. Harmless. Interesting. Uncontaminated. Okay. Dick, say that again. Uncontaminated. If we were to literally translate the second word, pure, unalloyed, would be the word. Unalloyed. Heated silver. Yeah. You know what uh, an alloy, uh, an alloy in terms of metal is? It's... Uh, to it's when it's diluted. It's when something else is introduced, and and usually to make it stronger. But 
But here he's trying to get the, the term pure. There is no contaminant. There's no alloy. There's no, uh, nothing else has been introduced. And so, again, he's talking collectively. Let your church be blameless. Let your church be pure. Why do you think he's saying this? Just for the sake of being a blameless and pure church? Why was that so important? It attracts others. For I mean, when I go into a situation where everybody's arguing and nicking at each other, I'm like, whoa, I think I'll step away from this. The lust so what for, if all these people go ahead, Nelson? The lust for vindication that I'm right and you're wrong. He Jesus didn't take the stance that he could have grasped. He let that go. All right. We're gonna see something else here in the next line that is gonna be part of it. Yeah. Do you remember in the in here I've said that the word evangelism and the word marketing are the same in Greek? So to tell the good news is to make the good news attractive to those who are outside of the faith. Marketing, evangelism, right? One beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. So if the world is in chaos, it would make a lot of sense that if there is a house of peace, if there is a place of peace, if there's a place where people get along and they don't grumble and they don't dispute and they don't argue and they don't sue each other, there's encouragement, there's affection, all these things that he's been saying. Think about how in today's contentious culture, wouldn't there be nice if there was a place where political dissension wasn't a thing, where people actually wanted the good of the whole? And Paul is saying in the culture that we're in, people are desperately trying to find a place of peace. And so what does he say? You're children of God, Okay, that reminds me of John 1, 12. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. Then you will be, so that you will be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault. Here it is, in a warped and crooked generation. And then another Hannah clause, then... As a result of following along, dot, 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 then you will shine like stars in the sky. Now, I read a little bit of a game changer. It was a drop the mic moment when I was studying today. What is the purpose when, when, when you see the metaphor shine like stars? Is the focus on the light or is the focus on the darkness? It's the light. 
I've I've told you guys before. I am a geek when it comes to stars, and and I I regret sometimes that I live in a city with so much light clutter. Uh, my backyard is pretty dark, and and on the on tonight it'll be beautifully clear. I'll be able to count stars. I teach at a college in Texas that's so far off the beaten path. The area code only has two numbers. <laughs> and on the road to get there, every now and then I'll pull off the side of the road and just lay on the hood of the rental car. Because the darkness is so dark and the contrast with the stars is so apparent that it feels like I can reach out and touch them. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's saying when we say shine like stars, we think of the light. He says, but what you're supposed to be thinking is the contrast to the darkness. He's just said you're in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So there's darkness everywhere. And you see these pinpoints of light. That's what he's trying to get us to see. It's not that you're going to overwhelm them as Dunwoody Baptist Church is in the majority. Y'all are taking over the world. It's you're going to be a minority. You are in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So then you will shine like stars. Another Hannah Claus, three of them right here, do everything without grumbling and complaining so that... You may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Word of life is a synonym for the gospel as you hold on to the gospel. So it's it's a beautifully constructed uh, admonition there. And he says, and then, there's another one, because of all of that, I will be able to boast on that day of Christ. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Has he already talked about the day of Christ in Philippians? Chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Sometimes uh, if you're reading through a uh, text in the scripture and you keep seeing on that day or to that day, um, there's a song we sing um, now. It's called the hymn of heaven. Um, and, and it's, it says, on that day, all will bow before him. On that day, and 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 the writers of the New Testament wanted us to think with that expectation. You know, that we, we worship like God was coming back in the next 20 minutes, and we worship like God's going to come back in thousands and thousands of years. That there is just this, this constant expectation uh, in our worship. So he says... Uh, as you hold firmly to the word of life, then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Every now and then, Paul reminds us that he's still in jail. Now, 
I've said I don't believe that Philippians was written when Paul was in the uh, the Mamertine prison waiting on execution. I, I think he was still under house arrest. And yet he knows, remember we said that the date of this is probably somewhere around 60, 61, and that if if the way I think it turned out was what it was, and I'm speculating like anybody else, that he was released somewhere around 62 or 63, then he did another missionary journey probably to Spain, and then they had enough of him, he was locked up again somewhere around the Great Fire of Rome, 64, and shortly after that, between 64 and 68, he was executed. And so I don't think he was in the same jail cell he was in when he wrote Second Timothy, but he knows that there's more behind him than there is in front of him. And so he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Uh, the, think about the Old Testament instructions to pour on the altar, that this is not a, an uncommon uh, descriptor for a Jew. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. You know, he said some of this in chapter one. He, even if we're going through circumstances that aren't ideal, only that Christ has preached, that he's glorified. He says, so even if I am short for this world, even if I... Uh, what do you say in, in, in chapter one for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, chapter one, verse 21. And so, you know, even if I'm being poured out, I'm glad I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's a hard pill to swallow. We go through some incredibly difficult days. But God is good, and in him we rejoice. Now, here's the good news. I'm not going to spend any time on the last several verses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and see if there's any question. He, um, the last verses in chapter 2, he is speaking of his two uh, protégés, his young Padawans, <laughs> uh, Timothy, who was probably his star pupil, and then Epaphroditus, and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that he was an elder at the church of Philippi. Of Philippi. He's from Philippi. He is a Philippian. Um, and he'd been sick. And so the people in the church who had dispatched Epaphroditus to be with Paul, they were really, really uptight because they'd heard he was sick. And Paul said, yeah, he was sick. He almost died. Uh, so I'm going to send him back to you so you can love on him a little bit, get him some soup, and, uh, and, and, and you can see what God did. God saved him. You heard he was sick. I want to make sure you see that he's well and you can love on him a little bit. I hope I'm going to be able to come there, but, but I, I don't know if I will. And so I'm going to make sure you guys have uh, some leadership, some teaching, uh, and I'm going to send Epaphroditus now, and hopefully later on I'll be able to send Timothy. 
I think he probably did send Timothy when he uh, was released from uh, prison in Rome. And then Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, he wrote when he was in the, the dungeon in Rome. All right. The theme is unity, right? He, he is, it's incredibly deep theology. Our unity is based on our humility. Our humility is based on the gospel. So we re rehearse one more time the, the gospel of Christ. He was born, he was prophesied, he was born, he lived, he taught, he was tried, he was crucified, he was buried on the third day, he arose, he promises he will return up on that truth that he laid down heaven to be one of us, can you get along with each other? <laughs> and uh, I, I look at Paul and I go, well, when you put it that way, yeah, okay. <laughs> get along with one another and rejoice.